This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So a couple of months ago, I was, it was actually uh, mid-April, and my youngest was supposed to graduate high school in the first part of June, June 3rd. And, you know, I, I will say if you've got a kid, I think kids, any school age kid has been impacted by COVID. I think that's true. I have some young clients who are college age, young adult clients who are college age. Their first year of college was pretty rocky due to COVID. You know, I can say that my high schooler had, on some level, it was maybe good. I think she socially was better off not being at the school. But online learning is really difficult, and I don't know that we can necessarily say it's learning when it's online under these circumstances. And, you know, I have friends or siblings who uh, have young kids in kindergarten or elementary school age. And I can't imagine the difficulty of teaching kids online at those ages. I can't imagine as a parent trying to keep everything going, whether you're working or trying to keep up with multiple kids on their school assignments and learning. I will just say, you know, COVID was really hard. And my particular student, my youngest, had this cutoff date, right, because she was supposed to graduate June 3rd. And so she had fallen behind in some things. She hadn't gotten credit in some classes. She was doing the makeup packets for some of her credits. And then, you know, maintaining her grades in the classes she was currently enrolled in so that she could get credits for that. And it's not like she was going to have wiggle room or extra, you know, so she could not get credit in one of her classes. She was struggling in her wildlife biology class, though and had talked to the teacher and said like, hey, I I absolutely need credit for this and I'm falling behind and just wondering what I can do to ensure that I will get credit for this class. And he told her, she came home from talking to him and said, he told me that if I just did one PowerPoint on the 10 animal phylum kingdoms, that that would ensure me credit in this class. And on the one hand, right, she was like, okay, I just have to do one PowerPoint. On the other hand, I could see when she's telling me this, right, that this is one, and and by the way, it had to be a minimum of 30 slides. So at least three slides per animal kingdom, which is, there's 10 of them. And there were certain things she had to cover. So a minimum of 30 slides. So she had to do this one PowerPoint, But it was also on top of maintaining the classes she was in and keeping up on the assignments and the homework that she was given in those classes, completing packets. I think mid-April, she probably had three packets to complete and then working on this PowerPoint. And I am one of those uh, parents who, I mean, and again, I don't want to diss on teachers or anything. I, I know teachers, I come from a background. My mom was a teacher several of my aunts, several of my uncles are teachers or have been teachers. Um, so I've, I feel like I kind of come from that background 
of education and having people in the education field. And I think that there's a lot that teachers do that is underpaid and underappreciated. I think it's difficult to be a teacher. I also think that there are teachers who maybe aren't in it to teach and maybe aren't in the profession doing their best work, right? Now, I will acknowledge from my field, my professional field, that's true of some of the therapists in the field. They may not be the best therapist or they may not be doing it for the right reason. And so I have always had the policy with my kids that if it's busy work, which I don't feel like is really educational or that beneficial for them as a student, that I have no problem helping out with busy work. And so, you know, the the PowerPoint isn't necessarily just busy work. Like when I'm talking busy work, it's like word searches or crossword puzzles or things like that. So, you know, the PowerPoint wasn't necessarily busy work, but I don't know that, you know, on the plate with everything else that she had going on, that doing this PowerPoint would be really an educational experience. And I mean, you know, I did graduate high school and passed my wildlife biology course, and I couldn't even tell you what the 10 animal phylum kingdoms were or what that meant. So I said to her, like, look, I know how to do PowerPoints. I could easily do a PowerPoint. I was going to be leaving that week to go down to Arizona for a conference and meeting up with other therapist friends that were also attending the conference. And I was looking forward to some time in the sun, time by the pool, time catching up with friends, and then also learning, which I knew I always learn a lot at the at symposium, at the ITAP symposium. So I was super excited about that. And I told her, I said, I, I can get this done, right? I'll be poolside. I can work on a PowerPoint from the side of the pool. So I tell you this long story because there is a point in this, right? One of the things that I learned when I was doing a PowerPoint that turned out to be 48 slides to cover all the information that the teacher had asked for, that one of the things that I learned, and just so you're aware, some of the um, different types of the animal phylum kingdom, if you, like me, are hearing this and thinking, I don't even know what that is, I'll just give you a preview, right? The first category is the periphera. Then there's the colenterata. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing these right. The platahelminthes, the nematoda, the analita, athropoda, mollusca. All of these things that I got to learn about, right? Well, the one thing that as I'm preparing for this podcast episode on principle nine that I learned from doing that PowerPoint is that all living organisms have certain characteristics that distinguish them from the non-living forms. And the basic processes of life include organization, metabolism, responsiveness, movements, and reproduction. And as we're doing this series on the 12 principles, we're on principle nine, and principle nine is responsiveness. And so again, as living forms, that is part of our organization. It's part of how we're wired and put together. And I think there could be, because we're complex creatures, living organisms, because we're complex, based on our experiences, based on trauma, based on attachment wounding, I would imagine that there's layers that could be placed on top of our organization that impact our responsiveness as creatures. But 
part of the work in recovery and part of the work in therapy, and as Dr. Carnes points out, principle nine is about responsiveness. So that's what we're going to talk about today in this episode is the principle of responsiveness. Now, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, responsiveness is defined like this, reacting in a desired or positive way, quick to respond. Now, sometimes maybe we think about speed when we think about responsiveness, right? If you've been around long enough to remember dial-up speed versus Wi-Fi, right? Wi-Fi is way more responsive than dial-up. So again, when we think about responsiveness, we may think about speed and we may think about other things like internet speed, right? Or the ability to have access with my phone, different things like that, right? To load certain things, whether it's on my laptop or whether it's on my phone, we might think about that type of responsiveness and we may miss turning that on us and looking at how we are in terms of our responsiveness. Do we react in a desired or positive way? And are we quick to respond? Other terms that could be substituted or thought of along the lines of responsiveness would include alertness, approachability, receptivity, sensitivity, acceptance, broad-mindedness, interest, observance, receptiveness, and tolerance. In May of 2010, in an article in A List Apart, Ethan Marcotte coined the term responsive web design. And he defined that to mean a fluid grid or flexible images and media queries. So users and developers alike started to realize the benefits and the importance of responsive designs as mobile use continued to increase. Now responsive design is the practice of designing a website so it looks and works properly on a range of different devices, particularly mobile phones and tablets, as well as desktops and laptops. So when we start to look at ourselves and the concept of responsiveness, we may also look at adaptiveness, right? Am I adaptive in different situations? Can I be authentic and similar in different situations, right? Do I look the same regardless of the situation that I'm in so that there is consistency and not compartmentalization? We can show responsiveness through prompt attentiveness when somebody asks us for something, even sometimes if that response has to be temporary. A response of, I don't know the answer, but I will find out and get back to you is friendlier and more professional or relational than leaving the question ignored or unanswered. We can demonstrate respect to others by responding to their outreach as quickly as possible. Now, I think I've said before in a different episode that in our multiple ways of reaching each other and communicating with each other, sometimes we get into this mindset of expecting a response on demand. And I think that goes too far to one end of the spectrum where we can't really be in this place of expecting a response to our text or to our email immediately because that's just not how normal schedules work or life works. So we can't expect this connection or this responsiveness on demand, but we can't go to the other side too of just 
letting it go and then forgetting it because I think that impacts the nature of the relationship and what we are creating in the relationships we're a part of when we are unresponsive. In a general path through the 12 principles, Dr. Carnes writes on principle nine, as our recovery deepens, responsibility grows into responsiveness. Spiritual intelligence unfolds into spiritual integrity. Making amends expands into mending the world. Now, if you're familiar with the 12 steps, step nine is made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So step nine really is about responsibility and accountability for our actions and the impact that our actions and our choices have had on others. The question that goes along with principle nine is what is integrity? Dr. Carnes continues, Step nine taught us to apologize and make amends whenever we create harm. As we live principle nine, we move beyond the personal and the situational. We begin asking ourselves a larger question. How can I make things better? As we go through our day, this question opens into innumerable others. How can I help my employer succeed? How can I deepen my relationship with my partner? How can I make my community safer? How can I be a better spouse, employee, volunteer, church member, parent, sibling, child, in-law, neighbor, community member, citizen, and steward of the planet? What is the next right thing I need to do? He continues, in Living Principle 9, we become acutely aware that every one of our actions and decisions has an effect on other people and the world. We begin to bring consciousness and discernment to everything we do. Our focus changes from me to we. Our inner observer now assumes a larger role. In addition to monitoring our brain and evaluating each situation, it asks, how can I best be of service? It also prompts us to address difficulties and conflicts sooner rather than later. We deal with things rather than let them languish or fester. In addition, we become more proactive. We think through the likely consequences of each potential course of action, not only its immediate consequences, but what may happen in a week, a month, a year, and 10 years. We respond to the future by making wise choices in the present. Day by day, we build integrity. A key aspect of this integrity is a nimbleness of spirit. One moment we may need to speak up, the next moment, we may need to be silent and listen. Responsiveness may prompt us to follow a rule in the morning, enforce a rule in the afternoon, and break a rule for an honorable reason in the evening. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the time is always right to do what is right. Dr. Carnes tells a story from the book Buddhism, Plain and Simple by Zen teacher Stephen Hagen. Zen teacher Stephen Hagen retells the story of an ancient Chinese farmer whose horse ran off. His neighbors expressed their sympathy for his loss. But the next day, the horse returned, leading an entire herd. The farmer's son soon broke his leg trying to ride one of the new horses. Then the army passed through and conscripted all the young men except the farmer's injured son. With each new event, the farmer's neighbors told him how lucky or unlucky he was. Each time he replied, who knows what's good or bad. 
Karn says, we live in freefall. Events cascade around us, and we are presented with one choice after another, each with uncertain outcomes. As we live into Principle 9, we do our best to stay open and alert. We respond to the challenge of the moment while staying focused on the larger calling in our life. In bringing together spiritual nimbleness and a sense of purpose, we create spiritual integrity. Now, I did an episode a while ago on freefall, and I first came into awareness about freefall and the concept of freefall through Joseph Campbell's work. And he writes this about freefall. He says, we're in a freefall into future. We don't know where we're going. Things are changing so fast. And always, when you're going through a long tunnel, anxiety comes along. And all you have to do to transform your hell into a paradise is to turn your fall into a voluntary act. It's a very interesting shift of perspective. And that's all it is. Joyful participation in the sorrows and everything changes. And that's what we're looking at with responsiveness. We're looking at changing and things around us being different from moment to moment and not necessarily knowing where the outcome goes, but being able to respond with alertness and awareness in that moment. Now, I think a lot has to go on before we're able to really practice principle nine. I think working the first 12 steps and getting a solid foundation underneath us, working the first eight principles and then adding to it the principle of responsiveness. Now, when we look at responsiveness within relationships, what I think about is the research that Dr. John Gottman and Julie Gottman did around couples. Now, a while ago, back in 2020, I did a series on the Gottman methods and the skills and the things that they have learned from their research and their sound relationship house. So I go into quite a bit of depth in those episodes. I'm not going to go into the same amount of depth in this episode. So if you didn't listen to that or you want a refresher, I would suggest going back to those particular podcasts. I believe there's three, maybe four of them. As part of the research that the Gottmans did, they conducted a study with newlyweds and then they followed up with them six years later. Now, many of the couples that they were studying remained together, but many divorced. What they found is the couples that stayed married were much better at one thing. And this is the third level of the sound relationship house, which I go into or you can do a Google search about what their sound relationship house is. But that third level that these couples did well was turning towards instead of away. At the six year follow up, couples that stayed married turned towards one another 86% of the time. Couples that divorced averaged only 33% of the time. So that's a significant difference in just one behavior that actually doesn't require that much of us. Turning towards really is about being responsive to our partner. Now, when I was training with the Gottmans, they show a lot of videos that they get from their research. Um, and they are videotaping couples that come and stay at their love lab is what they call it. And so there was a video that we're watching as therapists and, you know, they say, we want you to watch and we'll talk on the other side of this video clip about what you witnessed, right? 
And so this video clip, the apartment that the couple stay at is overlooking the Puget Sound. And I think it maybe it was a woman who was looking out the window of this apartment, looking out over the Puget Sound. And she says something like, wow, that's a pretty sailboat. And he is sitting at the kitchen table. I, if I'm remembering correctly, he's like reading the newspaper. And really all he does is he goes, uh. And they pause the video and they say, what did you see? Right? And most of us are sitting there like, mm, nothing. Like, this is what we're supposed to be witnessing. Because again, and they, they then explained that grunt that he basically made counts. Right? It may not be the most enthusiastic or the most exciting way of turning towards our partner. But she said something that didn't hold a lot of relevance to their relationship. But she said something and he responded. He acknowledged that she had said something. Even though he still continued to read his newspaper, he didn't go up and look out the window, jump up from the table, go look at the window and get excited about the sailboat. But he responded to her. And so like again, when I said, sometimes we have to give a temporary response. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. Let me get back to you on this, right? A temporary response is similar to a grunt. It's an acknowledgement. It's a response that you have engaged with me. I think that's actually pretty incredible data that the Gottmans have. It suggests that there's something you can do today that will dramatically change the course of your relationships. More importantly, it suggests there's something that you cannot do that will lead to its demise. So how do we turn towards? How do we respond in ways that dramatically changes the course of our relationships in a positive way? Well, in order to understand turning towards, you first have to understand bids. So this also comes from the Gottman's research. They define a bid as any attempt from one partner to another for attention, affirmation, affection, or any other positive connection. Bids show up in simple ways, a smile, a wink, more complex ways like a request for advice or help. Now their research does show that in general, women make more bids than men. But they also found that in the healthiest relationships, both partners are comfortable making all kinds of bids. Now bids can get tricky and admittedly, we probably miss more bids than not, including myself and I'm trained in this. Sometimes when I'm sitting with a couple in my office, I can see the bids, but I know they're not seeing the bids with each other, right? Because they're getting stuck in the context and maybe there's tension, maybe there's misunderstanding, maybe there's trauma that's come up. And so they're not seeing the bids for connection that are being made by each other. And they're missing that because of what has come up for them, right? That the organization that they've gone through with their experiences made them respond to threats and not so much to safety. Bids often have a secondary layer. This is where when I'm talking to couples, I will usually say there's the explicit layer that we communicate on, right? A lot of times couples will come in and they'll say, we need help with our communication. 
and I listen to them for that first session. And usually at the end of that session, I say, I don't think you have a problem communicating. I think you read each other very well and maybe too well, but I think we have to work on softening. I think we have to work on vulnerability. I think we have to work on openness and responsiveness and not necessarily communication because I've witnessed some things. You don't even have to say something. You know what the other person was thinking or feeling. So again, often there's this explicit layer, right? The things that we actually say. But then I also say there's a subcontext to what's being talked about, right? To the context, there is a subcontext. And it is the subcontext that is driving the communication and that is driving the relationship and whether or not we see bits or we don't see bits. Now, one of the things that you know I didn't learn about when I was doing this PowerPoint for my daughter, they didn't talk about love, right? It talked about reproduction, but most of the, I would say all of the 10 animal phylum kingdom, their reproductive natures were not necessarily relationship. I think that's something that has evolved as human beings have evolved in the animal kingdom. And I think like any other creative response, love has to be invented. And in order to have a loving relationship, we have to be part of that creation process, which means we have to be responsive to what's happening. We have to have a voice. We have to listen. We have to come up with ideas. We have to think outside the box. We have to move towards what we are creating and what we hope to reach. Now, maybe when you're thinking about responsiveness, it seems out of line with the values like respect or honesty and responsibility. But I think responsiveness is a tremendously important value that seems to be slipping away from us in both the personal and the business world, which is ironic as our means of communicating and connecting are growing and are quite vast, our ability to be responsive is actually slipping away. People who are responsive tend to be more alert and aware. Now, I think that also means that we're going to have to track and be mindful of how much sleep are we getting? How are we tending to our physical and emotional needs? Because if I'm not responding well to myself and my needs and my wants, I don't know that I'm going to be alert and aware and responsive when other people are engaging with me. We also know that somebody who has enthusiasm is more responsive than someone who seems bored or disconnected or unengaged, which makes sense, right? Like if you think about yourself when you've had a bad day or maybe you have somebody that you know and love who struggles with depression or anxiety and can kind of get in that place where they are disengaged or disconnected and kind of wrapped up in what's happening with themselves, they aren't as responsive to what's happening in their environment and what's going on with the people in their lives. All of this gets into what Stephen Covey referred to as the tyranny of the urgent. If you're familiar with Stephen Covey's work, he refers to the tyranny of the urgent as the activities and tasks that are of low importance, but that compete loudly for our attention. As many of us have discovered, if we don't move beyond the urgent, 
we never seem to make it to the really important tasks. And so those things can be misaligned where what is important to me is over and overly trumped by what is urgent in my life. And again, this is where responsiveness as a principle comes in where I take action sooner rather than later. And I am mindful about the timing of things and I can move at a pace that keeps up so that I come to my assistance instead of creating a backlog down the road. Now, I think there are some ways to be more responsive as a person that we can practice. And particularly, I wanted to focus on being more responsive in our primary relationships. So the first thing that I think we can do that we can practice to be more responsive is that we can be sensitive. I think this isn't um, something like a behavior that we shift into. I think being sensitive is a way that we start to engage with the world around us, as Dr. Carnes pointed out. Caring comes from the heart. And if we aren't spending adequate time connecting with our heart space, it's going to be hard for us to move through the world and to be in our relationships with sensitivity. Sensitivity requires that we reach deep down inside ourselves and ponder what it is exactly that our partner needs from us and how we can meet that need. And then we put that into practice. We are attentive and we nurture our partner. Now, I think this requires a certain level of maturity and it often works best if these are the things that were done to us throughout our life. From our first relationships with our parents and throughout our life as we started to take those relationships into other relationships with grandparents and schoolmates and friends and colleagues, it works best and we mature as designed if we have also been treated with sensitivity. Now, obviously, for many of us, that was not the way that that happened. And so often therapy becomes a way of regrowing up and relearning those skills and being treated with sensitivity and being really cared for in nurturing heartfelt ways. I think this is often why in recovery work, there's so much individual work to be done before couples work is going to be effective. The second way we can practice being more responsive is to be perceptive. Again, I think this is another skill that we're losing touch with. Being perceptive requires a level of emotional intelligence in order to listen to our partner with empathy and to have emotional understanding. It also requires us to respond from that level of empathy and understanding. To perceive what our partner is communicating, both with what they're saying and pulling from the knowledge that we have of them, their history, their story, their hot buttons, their insecurities, their strengths, and their fears. We're asking questions so that we can really understand and comprehend their point of view. And we strive to be aware of what our partner is feeling and thinking in that present moment. We listen with genuine curiosity and we make them feel understood and valued. The third way I think we can practice responsiveness is to be loving. And when I say be loving, I, I think also love is something that can mean a lot of different things. But I think at the core, love is about warmth. Love is about tenderness. Are we expressing ourselves in heartfelt ways? I think it is important to say a simple I love you. 
I didn't come from a family where we expressed I love yous. I remember being an adult and being on the phone with my brother, who at the time was living in New York, and we were, you know, reaching the end of our conversation and coming up to the end. And he said, hey, I've been thinking, I, I think it would, that we should start saying I love you to each other when we're hanging up the phone or when we're like leaving, right? If we're, to, if we're all together as siblings, I think we should start saying I love you. And it kind of took me by surprise. And I think he, you know, was feeling the vulnerability of putting that out there. And then I was kind of quiet for a minute and he kind of started to explain or maybe backpedal a little bit. And I said, no, 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 I, I think it's a good idea. And you're right. Like we didn't come from a family where that is done. And so I think it's going to feel awkward and maybe uncomfortable, but I do think it's something that we should start to do in our relationships with each other. And I don't know that we say that as often as maybe we did back then, right at that time, or even as often as we should. We do it more than we would have had he not initiated that. So I think saying a simple, I love you, is important. And we need to be able to express those words and to receive those words. But I think expressing our heart also comes in ways that aren't the simple words of I love you. We can be more specific and let them know why we love them. We can say to them, I love this about you. I see this about you and I think that's amazing. Sometimes too, appreciating the ways that we can show affection that aren't about sexual intimacy. Oftentimes when I'm working with sex addicts, it's not uncommon for sex addicts to take these forms of affection for granted or dismiss the importance outright. Or they see kissing, touching, holding hands, or cuddling only as a means to an end and can't appreciate them as standalone acts of affection. I think when we think about being loving, we start to think about what we're transmitting with our body language. What are we transmitting with our actions, our emotions? Are we being defensive or unsafe because we've had a relapse? or because of the shame we feel about our acting out behaviors and then expecting our partner to respond with warmth and understanding or even an offering of sex, that's impaired thinking. And it's also not being sensitive or seeing things from their perspective. Tender and warm emotional communication, being accountable and responsible in action is what begins to create a level of stability, safety, security, warmth, tenderness, and love. The fourth way that we can be attuned and show empathy and be responsive is just that, being attuned. Oftentimes, if our partner has a bad day or if our partner's feeling irritable or if our partner's feeling stressed, we may take that, it may be tempting to take that personally. And it may not be about us. And if we're responding as though it's personal, we're not responding to our partner's needs. Now, sometimes when dealing with betrayal trauma, it might be personal. It might be about you and what you've done. In these circumstances, can you tolerate the pain and lean in? Can you make space for the despair your partner is feeling and allow yourself to hold even a piece of it in a way that isn't defensive? Let your partner know that you care about their suffering, even when you've caused it. 
They need to understand that you still love and value them despite their distress. And then the last area where I think we can really practice responsiveness is to be unselfish and exhibit a willingness to yield to our partner when possible. Now, I know that's hard to do because so many of us want what we want and we want it when we want it, which is why I think it's even more important to be willing to yield to our partner when possible. Now, we, we can't force, right, what we think or want on them. Being a responsive partner means that you don't just get it your way or you don't just communicate from your own perspective. It means that you stay flexible. You listen for and are mindful of each other's preferences and you take that into consideration when making decisions. And you make experiences enjoyable for both of you. Turning towards and being responsive starts with paying attention. We have to first pay attention to what's happening for us and be mindful and aware and be able to own and take accountability for what's going on for us. Then we can start to pay attention to what's happening in our environment and in the people around us and in the relationships around us. We can work on looking for and recognizing bids Simply recognizing that a bid was made opens the door to being responsive. If you pay attention, you'll respond to both the text and the subtext. And as bids get more complicated, so will the nature of turning towards. This is where life and the relationships we're a part of become really meaningful and create depth. And where we have the ability to transcend our own selves and recognize that we are one small part of a greater whole. When we talk about self-transcendence, self-transcendence could be considered the neglected younger sibling of self-actualization. The concept of self-actualization has been around for quite a while and was well known for its place on top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. However, it's not been completely ignored. Researchers who are interested in human development, spirituality, and positive behavior traits are quite familiar with the concept and have incorporated it into their work. For many years, self-actualization dominated Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs. For a quick refresher, here's the hierarchy as Maslow created it. So think of a triangle and at the tip part is self-actualization. It's at the top. And then esteem is below that. And underneath esteem is love and belonging, then safety, and physiological needs at the bottom. Now this indicates that physiological needs are vital for survival and that they must be met before one can move up towards actualization and fulfillment. In his early work, Maslow considered self-actualization the pinnacle of human development and the highest human need, the realization of one's full potential. Self-actualization is indeed a lofty and worthy goal and should not be cast aside in favor of something new or shiny or something we need. But self-transcendence is truly the next level of development because it's other-focused. Not just realizing my own full potential, but it concerns higher goals than those which are self-serving. Maslow described the importance of transcendence like this. He said, transcendence refers to the very highest and most inclusive or holistic levels of human consciousness, behaving and relating as ends rather than means to oneself, to significant others, 
to human beings in general, to other species, to nature, and to the cosmos. According to Maslow, self-transcendence brings the individual what he termed peak experiences, in which they transcend their own personal concerns and see from a higher perspective. These experiences often bring strong positive emotions like joy, peace, and a well-developed sense of awareness. And just as Dr. Patrick Carnes wrote, as our recovery or our therapy or as our evolvement as human beings or whatever you want to add in there that relates this to you, as our recovery, as our work deepens, responsibility grows into responsiveness. Spiritual intelligence unfolds into spiritual integrity. Making amends expands into mending the world. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.